today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to talk about one of the Beatitudes. Um, we won't be looking at all of them, but we're going to look at one. Um, so today is just going to be a generally heavy day. Just warning you up front. Um, hearing the announcement of someone we love and love serving our kids, um, stepping away and called to something else. And then today we talk about persecution. Um, especially what's happened in the last week and what we know is happening in the world. It's just, there's just going to be a weight. There's no way I can lighten up persecution. There's not enough jokes. There's not enough. So just warning you um, that you're probably going to walk out of here with a heavy heart. Um, and I think that you probably should. You probably should. So we are going to be looking at um, Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Beatitudes. Um, I want to pray for us and then we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Um, that We find this to be a, really a true, I mean, I know we say it, and it's part of your word, and I know we kind of throw it around that it's a light upon our feet, um, but your word really is this light that helps shine in some of the darkest places. So help us, Lord, to read um, this passage today and to unpack it, but help us to see that we are part of a, a worldwide movement of your gospel, the good news that you died for our sin. And to some years, that is an affront, and it causes great pain for our Christian brothers and sisters. So help us to never forget them, to pray for them, and to honor them with our own efforts in spreading your name where we live. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So to kind of set this up, um, Jesus, in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is... um, This is after John the Baptist has prepared the way, after he's been baptized, after he's called um, the disciples, how he starts his ministry. And then he um, starts ministering in uh, chapter 4, 23 to 25. There's these huge crowds that are coming from all over the place to listen to this teacher. Like no one's ever heard someone teach like this. No one's ever heard someone unpack the scriptures like this. They're just blown away by what he's saying and the authority in which he speaks and the depth and the truth that's coming from his mouth. And so then there's this giant crowd that comes around him and he sits on this mountain and he begins to lay out what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it continues on for several chapters. And we could spend, I don't know, months, year or two, probably just going through these chapters. Like it's some of the most practical um, issues of the day. Like Jesus discusses theology. He discusses all these deep and heavy things. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks to a group of people that just need to hear from God. And he begins with the Beatitudes. And he lays out like this whole phrase, this succession he's building that you who are sitting here are blessed. Even though you might not be the richest, you might not be the poorest, you might not be the one with the most intelligence, you might not be, but in God's kingdom, everyone is welcome. So he begins and he starts off by saying that everyone here who is hungry, who wants this, who has a humility, who wants to know God, who even though they don't understand or they might struggle, as long as you're seeking him, he will find you there. And so the first call, which is what we always do, the first call is a call to the gospel. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is this is how you live out in light of the gospel. So you can tell everyone you are open and you're free to be a part of this if you would just humbly submit your life to God. Submit your life to God. And then he starts saying, this is how you live. Too often the church has done the opposite. The church has taken the Sermon on the Mount and said, 
Well, you need, if you don't love your enemies, if you have a divorce, if you're mad, um, if you have lust in your heart, if you do have a savings account, if you are a little nervous about things, you need to get all that stuff out of you and then come before God. That's not what we see right here in front of us. We see the call by Christ to say, all who are humble, all who understand that they don't have it all figured out, they're welcome. And then, as His Holy Spirit fills you and moves through you and shows you and you grow slowly, year by year by year, then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is something you can handle. So Jesus lays out to us, at the end of the Beatitudes, the one on persecution. You will be persecuted because you're talking this kind of freedom and grace to others. It's a guarantee Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, you will be persecuted. It's going to happen. You will face opposition because of your call by Christ. And that's hard for us, isn't it? Because in this kind of multicultural society that we live in in the United States, um, it's very hard to be in a multicultural society that thrives on tolerance when we as Christians say... No, this is bad behavior. This is immoral. This is wrong. There is evil in the world. And then we turn around and say, but I'm going to love you anyway. So we can look at someone and say, you've committed this heinous act. This has happened. There needs to be judgment. There needs to be payment. You need to follow what is in society. But you know what? I'm going to love you anyway. Because think about every other religion in the world. What do they say? One says it doesn't matter what you do, or others say it doesn't matter what you do, just love. Just do whatever you want, make up your own rules, just come on. Just do whatever you want. Wholesale slaughter people because they're different than you, but that's for you to figure out. That's your culture, it's your bent, it's I don't, you just go ahead. And then the other side of the society says, or other flip of the coin says, if you don't follow these rules, if you don't follow this path, these five pillars, if you don't do these things, then God cannot love you. And so the first affront that's going to lead to persecution is just the truth of Jesus. Because we call people to say, no matter where you are, where you've been, what you've done, grace is for you. It's a free gift. You can't earn this. This is a love present made by the one who created you, given to you as a free gift. You just have to receive it. And then we say, once you've received that free gift of grace, then the Holy Spirit will start to move these things out of you. will start to help you with these things. will start to... And isn't that a front to both sides? Because we say there are no rules, there's just Jesus. And then we say, well, you can't live your own way, you have to live the way Jesus said to live. And that just makes everybody mad. We are equal opportunity at irritating every religion in the world. So we can't be surprised that there's persecution that comes to the way of Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice it doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because you think you have it all figured out and you call everyone a sinner every day. Does it say that? Does it say, blessed are those who are persecuted because you look at everyone and you judge them every day, all day long, and call them out in their sin and just say, turn or burn. Like you have the sign or the bumper sticker on your car. If you have that on your car, I'm sorry, but please remove it. The blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for the righteousness of God. So we can't, as followers of Christ, put something on people that Christ himself doesn't put on them. You can't read through the New Testament and not see Jesus over and over again saying, I love you. 
I want to break bread with you. I want to be with you. And then once you accept that love, once you understand that kind of relationship, then he begins to work on your heart. He begins to help you get rid of this stuff you're struggling with. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if we break this down a little bit, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That persecution is the inevitable response of a darkness-loving culture. A culture that loves darkness is going to persecute those who bring in light. They're going to run from the light. Isn't that what typically happens? When you bring the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ in, people either want to throw you out the window or they want to hear more. Because they're in a spot where they're so wrapped up in the darkness that they can't find their way and you bring a glimmer of hope of light, they want to know more. And then others, when you bring that glimmer of light and hope in, say, I don't want any part of that. I'm living my life perfectly fine the way it is now. I don't want any part of that. In Genesis 3, we talked about last week, that this fall begins... When the command of God is reduced to questions about God. And isn't that what typically happens? So God gives us a command, and then we start to question, are you, are you really serious about that? Come on, God, did you really mean that? And so then we begin to invent our own way. So the tempta- the, from uh, a commentary, the temptation in the garden was to rebel against God's authority, and in the process makes humans the arbiters of morality. So we have a holy God who gives us a way to live with him as the power source. He doesn't ask us to do this on our own. And then we say, I'm going to create my own morality. I'm going to create my own way. I'm going to do things my way. Isn't that an affront to the gospel? I think so. So when you break it down this way, um, this is called phrasing when you phrase a text. The context of the who are persecuted and why... What the result is, is all these people. So when Jesus says this, blessed are those, anyone who is persecuted for righteousness sake, not just because you're, like if someone throws something at you when you're standing on a street corner with a sign condemning everyone that drives by, you're not being persecuted because of righteous sake, you're probably being persecuted because you're a jerk. There's a difference. There's a difference. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those, those who are persecuted those are the kingdom of heaven. So it's, it's understood by Christ that those who are, care about the righteousness of God are going to be persecuted. People are going to be mad at you when you tell them the truth. People are going to be angry with you when you call them out. People are going to be upset with you when you say that there is only one way to God through Christ the Son. And you say that, like, well, how, how dare you say that? Aren't there multiple paths? And then you go, well, I, I'm just quoting the Bible. Well, you know, the Bible, I'm quoting the very words of Christ. In John 14, what's he say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you have to actually cut pieces of the Bible out and throw them away to get to a place of universalism. So when you walk into a place and say, I I understand, I thank you for what what you're saying and where you're at, and I think it's great that you're on this path of trying to learn, but you're following a false hope. How How dare you? We are in a multicultural, multi-pluralistic society. How dare you say that to me? 
And the cross says that if we really love our brothers and sisters, we can't let them walk around in the dark forever. We have to help them. And you find a good way to do it. You don't just say, well, you know, all people of other faiths are just doomed. That might be true, but you don't say that. Don't you love them? Like one of the most unloving things you can do is just let people perish like that. So Jesus says, if you're persecuted, that's, that's part of the deal. From David Platt's book, I'll talk about it in a minute. He talks about um, a godless worldview leaves us with a hopeless subjectivity concerning good and evil that is wholly dependent on social constructs. Whatever a culture deems right is right, and whatever a culture deems wrong is wrong. And that's where we're at. We believe that right and wrong just shift over time. That right and wrong are just subjective, it's whatever feels good, it's whatever, and we just change it as we go. And Jesus is telling us, that when you're persecuted for righteousness, when you say that God says this, people are going to be mad at you. They're going to be mad at God because you're telling them that what they're doing or how they're living is wrong or it's not righteous. But he's saying it's going to come. Now we know in the last several weeks this has happened. There were 21 Coptic Christians, and, and there's, if you do the study of the history of the Coptic Christians in Egypt, there's some, there's differences in how we believe. But it is no mistake that these 21 men were killed because they professed Christ. They were lined up and put on a screen, they were videotaped, and they were killed. And that video was spread around the world, and they were killed for one reason, one reason only. They followed Jesus Christ. They were workers in Libya. They were there working to send food and money back home to their families in Egypt. And they were beheaded for one reason, one reason only. Depending upon who you talk to or the statistics that you read, there have been more Christians killed because of their faith since the year 1800 than have in the whole history of the church. Now, there are more Christians in the world since 1800, so the numbers obviously going to rise but in the history of the world more christians have been killed and martyred for their faith in the last 200 and so odd years than in the previous 1800 years before that so it's not gone away i think we have this idea this stuff goes away just like now there are 27 million people in slavery in the world there are more people in slavery today than ever were in the mid 1800s early 1800s in this country slavery hasn't gone away It's just shifted from African-Americans to 85% women are in the slave trade. It hasn't gone away. But what happens is a culture, we just think, well, we've kind of fixed these things. We've got governments and rules and the United Nations, and these things are just all kind of, it's not true. So today, there's a global movement to let this day be a day to pray for these 21 martyrs. And they put out a video that I'm going to show you, and it's not not graphic. So don't, I wouldn't do that. That's... um, but it's just a call for us to pray for the 21 martyrs. And it lists all their names. That these names won't be forgotten. So, we'll watch it now. You know, it is a very dangerous time to be a Christian. Torture, beheadings, destruction. The highest level of persecution of Christians. A church congregation barricading them. 
themselves in from hundreds of riot police. Are enduring attacks for their faith like Along never with the savage before. kidnappings of Christian schoolgirls in Nigeria by Boko Haram and the burning of Christian images of violence dominate headlines. Christians are being warned they have a choice: convert to Islam, pay a very steep price, or face death. Chilling new video showing the beheading of 21 Egyptian Christians. Beheadings of 21 Christians. 21 Christian men beheaded by Islamic State. We don't know what's happening. Yeah, technology is being lost on us. If it doesn't work, you get the point. Here it is. You know, it is a very dangerous time to be a Christian. Torture, beheadings, destruction. Here was the of highest people. level of persecution of Christians. A church congregation barricaded themselves in from hundreds of riot police. Are enduring attacks for their faith like Along never with the savage before. kidnappings of Christian schoolgirls in Nigeria by Boko Haram and the burning of Christian images churches. of violence dominate headlines. Christians are being warned they have a choice: convert to Islam, pay a very steep price. Or face death. Chilling new video showing the beheading of 21 Egyptian Christians. Beheadings of 21 Christians. 21 Christian men beheaded by Islamic State. The title of the video is a message signed with blood to the nation of we the cross. The, the sharpest jump in violent uh, attacks against Christians. We need to make the persecuted church an issue of prayer. John Stott in his classic Basic Christianity expresses, like, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with humanity that do this to each other? He says, we're able to think, choose, create, love, and worship. But we're also able to hate, covet, fight, and kill. Human beings are the inventors of hospitals for the care of the sick, of universities for the acquisition of wisdom, and of churches for the worship of God. But they've also invented torture chambers, concentration camps, and nuclear arsenals. This is the paradox of our humanness. We're both noble and ignoble both rational and irrational, both moral and immoral, both creative and destructive, both loving and selfish, both godlike and bestial. Why is this so? The gospel answers that although God created us in his image, we have rebelled against him in our independence. Though it looks different in each of our lives, we're all just like the man and woman in the garden. We think, even if God says not to do something, I'm going to do it anyway. In essence, we're saying, God's not Lord over me, and God doesn't know what's best for me. I define what's right and wrong, good and evil. 
that we've tried to take the hands of God and handcuff them and say that we are now the hands of ourselves. So even in the persecution of 21 men, you still hear in the news people trying to justify and why, like it's just evil. Like how could you go outside the bounds of any logic or reason to say that that's acceptable behavior? Do you know that there's actually people in this world that, in this world that deny the Holocaust ever happened? They deny that it ever happened. It's just something made up by the government. Like, how could you ever deny that that kind of systematic persecution happened to people? And you know that it doesn't go away? Just this last week, they arrested two men in their 90s for being guards, of one for being the accountant and one for being a guard. That we have in our society that we want justice, even when you're a 90-year-old man who helped these acts, you're still going to go on trial. It doesn't go away. So we can't just say it's not evil. But then we also can't be surprised by it. Because Christ tells us we will be persecuted because we care about truth and we care about righteousness. And when you look someone or you tell someone that what they believe isn't right, they don't like that. Do you like it when someone tells you you're wrong? I can't stand it. It like hurts my heart. What have I done? I question myself. I'm like, ah, and... But think about when you do it on a global level. Persecution comes. Martin Luther, talking about persecution, suffer, suffer, the cross, the cross. That is the Christian way and nothing else. Paul tells in 2 Timothy, Indeed, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It will come your way. You know the story of John the Baptist? Why was he beheaded? This is a picture of him being beheaded and his head being given on a platter to the daughter and the mother who wanted the beheading to happen was behind Herodias. So you have Herodias behind her. Do you know the story of of John the Baptist and why he was beheaded? Well, I'm going to read it to you. Matthew 14. At the time, that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So what they're saying is that Herod doesn't understand that it's not John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the one who killed him. So he's feeling he's being, that Jesus is him come back to haunt him for his decision. That's not what happened. But he, he tells the story of what, what, why he believes this. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. So what happened was, um, Herod thought his brother's, his sister-in-law was pretty good looking and decided, I want her for my wife. So he takes his sister-in-law to be his own wife. So that we would call that adultery, possibly on the grounds of incest. He's violating these things that God says is wrong. And John the Baptist says, hey, you can't, this isn't right. You can't do this. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they had held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So here's another issue of sin. His stepdaughter is dancing provocatively on his own, on his birth, the birthday of her stepfather. So she's dancing and pleased them. 
So it's a Middle Eastern strip club birthday party. And so she's dancing and pleases the men. And he says, man, you're a good dancer. I'll give you whatever you want. And she says, prompted by her mother, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So why was John the Baptist put in prison? Because he called out a leader in adultery. This is not appropriate behavior. You cannot take someone that's not your wife. You can't, it's wrong. This is wrong. Throws him in prison. He's in prison. And because he's caused this fervor, because all these people are calling into question his relationship with his new wife, his stepdaughter comes and dances for them. Another issue of sin. And then asks for his head. So why was he killed? Because he called people to righteousness. He called the leader to righteousness. He said, this is wrong. So we, we read this, we just kind of pass over it. Why are we surprised? Well, you can't be surprised by these things. So then, the passage in the Beatitudes changes a little bit. Blessed are you who, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. So this is not persecution to death. This is being made fun of. In our context today would be maybe being passed over the promotion. You don't get the job. People ridicule you for what you believe. Those kinds of things. It's interesting when you talk to people about the certainty of Christ and how you need him for um, salvation and how God will judge and righteously judge everyone and the righteous will go be with him in heaven through the blood of Christ and the unrighteous will go to be an attorney separated from God. People ask the question, how can a good God let people go to hell? How can a good God let anyone go to hell? And the right question we see in the Bible is not that. It's God, how can he be just and still let guilty sinners go to heaven? It's the opposite question. People often ask all the time, like, well, how can a good God let someone go to hell? And the right question is, how can God in his holiness let any of us in because we're guilty of sin? If he's holy and righteous, none of us get in. Only because of the blood of the cross do we get in. So when you say those kinds of things, people are going to be upset with you. Now, when you break it down in the phrasing, you're blessed. Blessed are the people who, when others revile you, persecute you, and utter bad things against you, on the account of Christ. We should expect these things. That when you stand up and say, this is wrong, people are going to get upset with you. But, we do it on the account of Christ. It's not that they hate you, they hate that you're telling them about Jesus. They're upset about what you tell them about Jesus. When you stand up against evil, people will not like that. David Platt has a book out um, called Counterculture, and it is a pretty much an in-your-face kind of a book about our current culture and things that are going on and what, as Christians, how we can approach people in conviction, courage, and compassion. Because he's not the guy that says, just go do it a picket. Have you guys read his book, Radical? I know some of you have. He wrote a book, Radical, and he wrote a book this last um, year called County. He's been working on it for a couple of years. He's now the president. He was a pastor at the, at the church of Brook Hills in Alabama, a mega church of about 3000. And now he's the, um, director of the international mission board for the Southern Baptist convention. And he's pushing for a more active church in the world. He's about a year older than me. 
and he was a PhD seminary professor in New Orleans. Katrina hit, and he lost the university and lost his job and because everything was washed away. And so he found himself just God moving him in all these directions. Well, he writes this book, and in it, he talks about when you put all the truths of the gospel together, you realize that the most offensive and countercultural claim in Christianity is not what Christians believe about everything. Religious liberty, marriage, abortion, homosexuality. Like That's the buzzwords we see in the news. And everyone wants to talk about those issues. But what Christians... Instead, the most offensive claim in Christianity is that God is a creator, owner, and judge of every person on the planet. And every one of us stands before him guilty of sin, and the only way to, reconcile, to be reconciled to him is through faith in Jesus, the crucified Savior and risen King. All who trust in his love will experience everlasting life, while all who turn from his lordship will suffer everlasting death. Like, that's what people are offended by. And too often we focus on arguing all of these other issues, which are important, and we should have a voice in those spaces. But when you look at people and say, your life isn't yours, God owns you, he's owned you before you were knit together in your mother's womb, and he will be the ultimate judge of your eternity, people go, uh, what? How dare you? But if you believe that, then everything else that comes our way it shouldn't be a surprise to us. He ends it, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We should be surprised by this. The Old Testament prophets were all persecuted, weren't they? All of them. Like, when you read through the Bible and you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament can get a little depressing. Not because of, it's hard to understand, a lot of language barriers, but because over and over and over again, God said, hey, you're messing up. And he sends someone to tell them. And they go, ah... I'm going to do it my way. I'm like, oh, come on. What are you doing? Over and over. But aren't we the same way? Are we exactly the same way? Like he puts people in your life to say, I think this is an issue. I think this is a problem. And we go, I know. I'm, I'm fine. God's okay with what I'm doing. But he tells us to rejoice and be glad. So he's saying this after the persecutions come. Rejoice and be glad because someone's coming against you. It's almost like he's saying that we're glad because we have a reward in heaven and we're glad because we are continuing the tradition of the prophets. We shouldn't be surprised when people get upset with us. And if we're doing it in the right way, the right reasons, with love in our hearts, with teaching the gospel to all, then we should say, good. Like, it, it's bad if, there, if I haven't offended or hurt someone's feelings a little bit or had led to a longer conversation after church. If that hasn't happened for a while, then I start to feel like maybe I've kind of got weak in my preaching. Like, people should be moved by God's word. People should be motivated. People should be a little offended by some stuff that comes out of my mouth if I'm doing my job and speaking God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit. It should make people uncomfortable. But if this place blows up and it's 5,000 strong in this church because they've come to hear a couple good jokes and a couple cool videos, then what have I done? I've not drawn anyone to the truth of the gospel. We've just put on a show. So we should be glad when this stuff happens because it lets us know we're on the right path. For we are the aroma of Christ in 2 Corinthians 2. 
the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance, fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So Paul is telling the church in Corinth that we have the aroma of Christ on us. And there are going to be some people that are drawn to that. And there are going to be some people that are offended by it because we constantly talk about Jesus. And we should be called to that. So the essence of what the Bible calls sin is the exaltation of self, which is kind of what Keith was talking about. That the essence of sin is when we put ourselves before a holy God and say, I'm in charge. That's the essence of sin. Selfishness. Our message means that we walk with Christ. It's that hard, it's that simple, and it's that good. But that's our message. That we are selfless. And that causes people to say, what? That we become selfless in who we are. That's an offense. Think about the motivations in this culture, in this country, about gain. I think I've shared this before, but um, I know that one of the financial planners, the financial works for Wells Fargo for the the Hobby Lobby family. And before the court case went their way, they were very adamant. They were willing to throw away their entire business because they weren't. They felt the moral conviction that just a few of the drugs put in the Affordable Care Act that led to. Um, the abortion of children that they couldn't support. That they supported everything else in there, but there were four drugs of the 18 list that they couldn't support. And they asked for waivers, they asked for a way out, and they said, we'll do it, we're going to give everybody health care, but these four things we can't accept. And so you could tell that as it built up, it was clearly a, it was all leading to the Supreme Court as a test case. Does religious liberty affect a private institution or a business? Can you bring that into the place? And so the whole court case, they were ready to fold the whole thing. They, they had a moral conviction that they were not going to go with this. So the family was ready to say, we're just, we're done. We're gonna, it's going to hurt our employees. It's gonna hurt. But then they also had another way that was going to cause more lawsuits was to go from being a business to a sole proprietorship, which is a whole different, been a whole legal mess again, change the whole business structure, stay in business, but it would, would have been like, they wouldn't have had any divestment. And it would have been a long, fought out, more and more and more and more and more. Do we see that very often anymore today? We're willing to lose your job because of a moral conviction. You're willing to give up your house. You're willing to move. You're willing to lose friendships. You're willing to, because you have a moral conviction that says, this is what Christ is saying, and I cannot go away from that. Now, persecution in this country does not look like persecution in Africa. Like, you understand that in Nigeria, Boko Haram, that terrorist organization, that they went after Christian girls. It wasn't just girls, it was Christian girls. They went after them for a reason. The whole point of their existence is to destroy Western civilization, especially Christianity. There have been more Christians killed in Nigeria in the last year than any other country. You, they had satellite footage of 2,000 dead in a village just thrown in bushes like garbage. 
because it was a town that had more churches than mosques. So we don't face that kind of persecution. It may happen, but I, I really doubt it. It's possible. There could be small pockets, but that kind of wholesale slaughter in Laramie, I don't really envision that. But the kind of persecution you will face here is when you stand up for your morals. When someone comes to you and says, hey, I, we're going to go watch this thing. We're going to go do this thing. You want to come? Mm, I don't know if that's right. I don't think that's redeeming. I don't think I should. It's not for me. What are you, some kind of prude? Oh, you're one of those people. You're that kind of Christian. Yeah, I am. I, I am. Oh, come on. It's just a video. Oh, come on. We're just going. It's not a big deal. I'm, last week, and this was, I'll just give you a window into my life and some of my family. So last week I made mention of a movie that came out that I was cautioning you that you probably shouldn't watch. I don't think it's good. I don't think it's good for women. I don't think it's good for marriage. I just don't think it's wise to go that way. So I called my mom. And my mom, did I tell you this last week? I didn't. So I called my mom. How you doing, mom? How's it going? I've been sick. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was so sick I couldn't go watch that movie with my friends. I read the books. You did? You know, and so here I am, 1,200 miles away, on a phone with my mother, and I had this moment to just go, oh, it's too bad, maybe we can see it next week. Or do I step into this with her? My mom's first marriage, not to my dad, the one before she married my dad, she was out of that marriage in nine months because it was an abusive relationship. And she told me this when I was 15 and said, I was in an abusive relationship where the man forced himself upon me. She told me she essentially felt raped in her own home and he wanted to do things that she didn't think was right. And so she left him. So since I was very young, my mom has told me if I ever lay a hand on a girl, she will kill me with a frying pan. And she rightfully should. And I tell the same thing to my son. Like you do not get physical with a woman. My mom burned that into my heart at a very young age. More than once, when Amber and I have maybe been in an argument or whatever, she's been the one to say, you need to go ask for forgiveness because you're the man and I never had a man do that. You need to go. You're right, I do. Like even dating at 20. And here's my mom going to watch a movie that I just told a whole church they shouldn't go watch. And I go, Mom, how, how can you even... Like, is that what you want for your granddaughters? Well, no. I know what happened in your first marriage. How could you even read that stuff? Well, everyone was reading it. My aunt was reading it and gave her the books. And so she just, like, Mom, it's not good. It's not right. Would you want me to do any of the things in that book to Amber? Well, no. Why? Why? So do you talk about an awkward, tense moment with my mother? Like, number one, I shouldn't have those kind of conversations with my mom to begin with. But, like, we're right there. And I'm like, so, I, I, and there was a moment of hesitation in me to just let it go. Just let it go. Just talk about what's going on at home. Just let it go. I couldn't do it. Now, think about how often those moments happen where you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, 
and we just push it down because we're afraid. And how often have you robbed someone from the light, the truth, of the love of Christ because you're afraid of awkwardness? You're afraid of a tough conversation. I don't like them either. But if we really love our neighbors as we love ourselves, shouldn't we walk in that? Now, I'm the first one. I love this quote. It's from Kevin DeYoung, and I totally stole it off of him, the bottom one. Being a Christian means walking with Christ. We all know that. Like, we're Christians. It's kind of on the label. It's kind of on the title. We walk with Christ. But it's hard. It's simple. And it's, it's really that good, isn't it? It's difficult to walk in that kind of, walk that kind of life and that kind of persecution. To walk in that kind of awkwardness. And it's very simple. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You can't get to the Father except through the Son. <clears throat> he paid the price for you on the cross. You need to submit to him in humility. We can work out all the other details. We can talk about all the other things and all the minutia, but it really boils down to a simple humility. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord of everything or do you want to be Lord of everything? If he reigns supreme, then you must become second. Or third or fourth or fifth. So the two things to leave you with is we shouldn't be surprised by persecution. Like when we turn on the news, we shouldn't be totally blown away, surprised, can't believe it. How could this happen? Where is God? He's right in the midst. He's right in the middle of it. And we have to understand that we caused this. Our first mother and our first father, Adam and Eve, caused it all happen by sinning in the garden. And now we're bearing the consequences. And we groan with creation, waiting for Christ to come back. And then in this country, persecution is completely different than the rest of the world. It's completely different. But it is real. And it is hard. But we have to walk through it. But isn't it worth it? Isn't it worth it? Isn't Christ worth it? Isn't the cross worth it? Isn't the joy you felt at the day of your salvation that's continued to grow in your heart, you've been sanctified, you're slowly being transformed more and more like Christ, isn't it worth all of it? Of course it is. I'm not saying it's easy. But what I'm saying is it's good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for for your example. You were persecuted for your life. You were persecuted for what you taught, how you called people to righteousness, but also how you freely showed the arms of grace to all those who would come near you. You weren't just sent to the cross because some religious leaders were mad at you. You joyfully walked to the cross telling everyone you were God in flesh and proving it to them in your death and your burial and your resurrection. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people of the cross. We would never forget that you've paid for our sin and that we can be with you forever. It starts here on this earth as we grow closer to you and we grow in sharing the name 
that saved us. And on that day of judgment, whenever that happens, whether we die or whether you come We will be with you forever. So I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room knows that. And if you're slowly awakening some to the truth of the gospel, then I pray that you would continue to send your spirit, motivate them, show them that you are a God of love who wants to wrap us in your arms and help us to see who we're really meant to be. We love you, Jesus. Amen. During this um, hymn of invitation,